Well, please have your Bible open in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is not the beginning of a new series this evening, uh, God willing. Uh, we shall do that over the next few weeks. Um, but I wanted to turn to a passage this evening which in some way would complement some of the great issues that we've been faced with in our studies in the morning in Philippians chapter 2. Um, very significant themes that the Apostle Paul brings to our attention, particularly in chapter 2, concerning the Christian life and what it means to live as a believer, uh, what it means to be a member of a local church. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we gain further insight into the life of Paul. We gain some insight into his heart and his mind, which I believe in a considerable way uh, complements some of the things that we've been looking at in Philippians. In chapter 9, Paul presents himself as an example of service for us to follow. And there are a number of things that uh, come out of this chapter. Now, in the previous chapter, in chapter 8, uh, that's what for many is that well-known passage about what do you do about eating food that previously had been offered to idols in pagan worship. In that chapter, Paul shows us that there are many freedoms and liberties that we have as Christians in Christ Jesus. There are many things that you and I are free to choose to do. However, we need to be ready to accept that because of the very wide range of backgrounds and cultures from which we're all drawn, and because of the personal experiences that each of us have been through in our lives, often before we became believers, it will always be the case that we find that amongst the church we have differences of conscience on a variety of issues. And if I'm about to make a choice which I am at complete liberty to make as a Christian, but I know that in making that choice I may well be a cause of stumbling or offence to another Christian, then I must be ready to forego that liberty and not make that choice, even though as a Christian I'm free to make the choice, but I'm prepared to forego it for the sake of the brother or sister in Christ who I might cause to stumble or whom I might be an offence to them. As we saw in Philippians chapter 2, each other's needs to prefer. And we might find in our heart a voice is shouting out, but I'm free to do it. It's what I choose. And looking at a fellow believer, you'll just have to lump it because I'm making the choice anyway. No, says Paul. There's no place for that kind of attitude amongst the Lord's people. We need to have a far greater concern for one another than just to do something without any worry about what it might cause to another. That kind of attitude finds its place all too often in the world. Leave it in the world, says Paul. Don't bring it into the church. And then in chapter 9, Paul expands somewhat on this theme by giving us an insight into his own character and some of the choices that he has had to make as an apostle, the things that motivate him. 
and why it is that he's chosen to do certain things. And I think we'll find these very helpful if we'll take the time to pause and consider them. Uh, He's been talking about rights that we can claim as Christians and being prepared not to exercise that right. And he points out that not claiming certain rights has actually been a regular feature in his own life. And in this, we find a very helpful example. So first of all, let's think about the issue of rights and look at this example that Paul gives us. And this really covers the first 18 verses of chapter 9. And you might want to have that chapter open just to glance down at a few of the verses that I highlight as we go through. Well, in the world in which we live today, but it's my right is something that you hear said loud and strong. Human rights has become a quagmire of confusion and self-centeredness over the last few decades, and it's only getting worse almost by the day. Countless voices are claiming that such and such a thing is their right and they are going to have it no matter what. And who are you to stop me? And how dare you even suggest that I shouldn't have it? Some now want it to be the right of everyone to choose which gender they wish to identify as being. You all thought it was a rather obvious and straightforward matter of creation and biology. Well, apparently in the big world out there, not anymore it isn't. You can choose. But in a world obsessed with claiming its rights, what a contrast of grace we see in the life of the Apostle. And in the opening verses, he points out that as an apostle, for that is what he is, the very existence of the Corinthian church is in many ways proof of his apostleship, for they, verse 2, they are the fruit of his labours as an apostle. Now as an apostle, he can lay claim to even more rights as a Christian than they can. Yet he chooses not to exercise all of those rights. And importantly and helpfully, he tells us why. As an apostle, in verse 4, he has the right to be supported financially by the church. To eat and to drink is to be supported by them so that he can live. And all other full-time gospel workers have that same right as well, along with their wives, verses 5 and 6. Now, in many ways, Paul says, this makes him no different to anybody else who works, regardless of what their occupation is, verse 7. Whether they're a soldier or a farmer or a shepherd, all have the right to receive a wage for the work that they do. That seems fairly fair and just and obvious. Now, these things I'm talking about, Paul says in verses 8 and 9, these aren't my ideas that I've just come up with. These are embedded in the word of God. Even an ox, when it's treading out the grain, should be bridled in such a way that whilst it's doing its work, if it wishes to put its head down and eat some of the grain, it is free and able to do so. 
It's in verse 9. And if God gives us the example of the ox, verse 10, in order that we can see that it's true for the ox, how much more is this not true for people? And how much more is this not true for the Lord's people? He says in verse 12 that there are others who claim this right to be supported by the church. And if they have the right, then Paul and Barnabas most certainly do. For this Corinthian church was founded upon their ministry. But unlike the others, and this doesn't make the others wrong, unlike the others, Paul and Barnabas have chosen not to claim this right of receiving anything in the way of support from the church. So it's not up to the church to decide whether or not its full-time workers should be paid. That is a fact and a principle that's established. It's a God-given right that those workers have. But they do have the liberty to choose not to take it. And that's what Paul and Barnabas have done in this case. So we can ask Paul the obvious question, well, why have you chosen not to claim something which is rightfully yours? Why have you made that choice, Paul? Because, verse 12, <clears throat> Paul is concerned that in his case, it's something that could hinder the progress of the gospel. And the progress of the gospel is so high on his order of priorities that he's ready to lay aside even the right to be paid if he thinks the gospel will flourish better for it. God has made it clear that those in his service, like the Old Testament priests who there who verses 13 and 14 are referring to, God's made it clear that they should be provided for by those whom they serve. Those who labour full-time in the church should likewise be provided for by the church. And in verses 16 and 18, or 16, 17 and 18, Paul concludes that he preaches because he has to preach. He must preach. He's compelled to preach. He's been appointed by God to preach, and preach he must now, Paul was someone who found that he was often misunderstood, he was often misrepresented, he was often publicly maligned, and he's found it necessary to demonstrate that he's not in this preaching game, as some might see it, for any personal gain. He is a genuine apostle of Christ. He's a genuine herald of the gospel. And to make the point and to try and do away with many of the negative things that are being said by him. The last thing he needs is to give people the opportunity to say that he's in this for personal gain. He's got enough problems as it is without that as well. And so he chooses not to take any payment from the church so that no such accusation can be made against him because he knows that that would only hinder the progress of the gospel. He chooses not to exercise the rights that he has. Why? Simply for the cause and sake of the gospel. Now similarly, you see, you and I may find that we have to choose 
not to exercise certain rights. Why? For the sake of the gospel or for the sake of another believer. That's the issue at heart here. That I'm not ready to ride roughshod over people just to claim that which I know I could have. Because such is my heart for Christ, such is my heart for his kingdom, such is my heart for his cause, such is my heart for his people, I'm quite prepared to do that thing that I could claim if it's of benefit to all of these other things. And it's having this heart attitude that we see in Paul that is the great example for each of us. As long as the gospel is spreading, it doesn't matter to Paul what it costs. And he trusts that by explaining the rights which he has chosen to lay aside, that other Christians will likewise be happy to nurture the same kind of attitude. And if, it, if you find you're in a position where it's necessary, to exercise that same kind of attitude that Paul is willing to exercise as well. To lay aside your rights for the cause of the gospel and for the good of Christ's church. Now this, you see is one of the many marks that a Christian bears. That this particular aspect of worldliness, always ready to claim my rights no matter what, that this aspect of worldliness has been radically changed within us by God's grace. And so we see this in Paul. Uh, And this is the, the first point that comes across. This issue of rights. And what our new relationship to them is in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then from verse 19 and through into verse 23, we see a second thing coming up. Which is that Paul, as well as on the one hand having rights that he chooses not to claim, he also finds that he's been liberated to serve Christ in many different ways. Now, Paul, in many ways, in the time and the place in which he lived, was a free man. Uh, He wasn't a slave. Many of the people in New Testament days were slaves. We know for a fact that there were slaves who were members of churches because, on occasion, the Apostle Paul addresses them personally and specifically and gives them um, instruction as to how they ought to live uh, in relationship to their masters. Now, Paul is not a slave. So that gives him a great amount of freedom that some Christians didn't enjoy. Uh, He's a Roman citizen. Well, that means something. It doesn't mean much to you and me today, but it meant a lot to Paul. As a Roman citizen, he had great freedom to travel across the Roman Empire. And he had access to uh, their infrastructure, which, of course, they were famous for. He wasn't married. And that meant that he had a liberty that Many men who were married didn't enjoy. Uh, Men who are married, quite rightly, have to consider their wives in all the choices that they make. Of course they do. They must. Uh, Paul didn't have that particular aspect in his life. So he had more liberty than other men in terms of travelling and how many many months he might spend away on his missionary journeys without having to consider his wife or children. He's a Christian who's been set free from the captivity of sin, as we all are. And he's a Jewish Christian who's been set free 
from so many of the rituals and ceremonies of the Old Testament law because he's no longer under that law. He's under the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And so many of those Old Testament rituals and ceremonies are no longer required. Christ has fulfilled them all. He's been set free from those things. He was bound to so many laws as a Pharisee, far more than the ordinary man in the street. He's been liberated from it all and set free from that bondage. Yet he has set aside many of the rights that this liberty brings, verse 19, by making himself a servant. He's been liberated to serve. Why? That he may win even more people to Christ. For example, he says in verses 20 to 22, uh, when I'm with the Jews, I am as a Jew. And when I'm with the Gentiles, I am as a Gentile. And there are certain liberties that I could enjoy, but in the same way as he's prepared to lay aside some of his rights, he's also ready, uh, not always, to claim all the liberties that he has. He's prepared to make himself a servant. I do all I can to win people for Christ, he says. Now, he knows he can't disobey clear teachings of Scripture. He knows that he can't ignore the principles by which God says he must live. He is under the law of Christ. But, says Paul, I will do everything I can not to hinder the progress of the gospel. So when I'm with the Jews, as much as, as, much as the word of God and the law of Christ permits me, I'll behave in such a way as to make my, myself acceptable to those Jews so that I can get a hearing with them to preach the gospel. I'll do whatever I can not to erect unnecessary barriers with a Jew in order that I can preach the gospel to them and get a hearing with them. I'll not make the task even more difficult unnecessarily. If it helps that I cover my head, I'll cover my head so that I get an audience with the Jews. If it helps for me to wash my hands in the expected manner before we have a meal, I'll wash my hands in the expected manner before we have a meal. If it means that I can eat with them, and speak to them about the things of Christ. If it means that I speak to them in Hebrew instead of speaking in Greek, well, I'll speak to them in Hebrew. And when I speak to them, I will do my best to speak to them from the position and perspective of a Jew. Get into their way of thinking and, and meet them in that way. Now, whether I'm with Gentiles, as much as I possibly can before the Lord in Christ, and as much as my conscience will ever allow me to, I'll happily leave behind my Jewishness when I'm with the Gentiles so that I can do my best to meet them on their ground and speak to them in their own language. If I can avoid unnecessary offence or hindrance when I'm trying to preach the gospel, I will do, and I'm at liberty to do so. Now, of course, we need to bear in mind that Paul is not saying here that he is free to do absolutely anything. He's not saying that at all. What he is saying is that he will do whatever he is able to do as a Christian man so as not to hinder the gospel 
without ever compromising the gospel. If he can use his liberty, he'll use it to the same extent that he's ready to put aside his rights if he needs to. Paul's concern is that the only problems he should ever bring to people as he preaches the gospel are the problems that the gospel itself confronts them with, that the truth itself confronts them with. Of course, the reason we struggle with some of this is that um, perhaps we're often a bit confused over what is mandatory, as we might say, for a Christian, and which are those issues which are matters of Christian liberty. And those things which we are clear are a matter of liberty, we're in danger of claiming as a right And we're not prepared to give them up. So we often struggle with these kinds of things. But there are some helpful examples outside of the scriptures that help us to see through these kinds of issues. One great example, and I've mentioned him before, is Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor was the founder of the China Inland Mission around 150 years ago. And he created quite a storm back home in England when news reached his supporters that he had chosen to uh, acquire Chinese dress and he adopted to live just like any Chinese man would live in terms of how he dressed and the food he ate and the kind of house he lived in and so on. He shaved his head except for a small pigtail right at the back and he wore Chinese clothes. Many Christians back here in England were absolutely aghast. Hudson Taylor, you're an Englishman. Look and live like the Chinese. Unthinkable. They probably had in their minds that the gospel wasn't so much about saving them as making them British. Some of them withdrew their support of him when they heard about these outrageous methods that he was adopting on the mission field. They, like many after them, were confused between that which was purely English culture and custom and that which was essential to being a Christian and declaring the gospel. But despite those issues, at Hudson Taylor's death, that mission had 205 mission stations around China. 800 missionaries worked for the mission And they had reports of over 100,000 Chinese people who'd come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Why? Because Hudson Taylor had learned the same lesson as, as the Apostle Paul. We are to do whatever is permissible for us as Christian believers for the sake of the gospel. And Hudson Taylor realized that. And he put it into practice in his life. How was an English gentleman 150 years ago in China supposed to relate to the Chinese in their own country and in the language that they spoke and in the culture in which they lived? And more significantly, how would they relate to him? How could he minimise the distractions? How could he break down any unnecessary barriers between him and the people when it came to telling them about Christ? By becoming as much like them as it's possible to become without compromising the gospel in any way. And without compromising his own Christian witness. So Hudson Taylor went through these kinds of mental processes. 
If not having a shaved head gets in the way of the gospel, what is there to stop me shaving my head? Nothing. If not having one of these quirky little pigtails at the back of my head is a barrier to me sharing the gospel with them, what is there that stops me from having a quirky little pigtail at the back of my head? There's nothing. If wearing English clothes and retaining those kinds of aspects of my English lifestyle is getting in the way of the gospel, I'll abandon them. I'll discard them for the sake of Christ. I'll do anything I can to reach others for Christ. But that doesn't mean he'll do absolutely anything. He'll do whatever he can as a Christian man under the law of Christ to reach the lost. A number of years ago, I met a man. Um, his name was Keith, not this Keith, another Keith. He was a full-time worker back then. I've lost touch with him since. I'm not sure whether he's still there or not. But he was a full-time worker with Liverpool City Mission at their old Jubilee Chapel Centre, which some of you will know about. Keith used to be a Hell's Angel biker. The full works. He was a rough, tough man. Uh, even as a saved man, you could see some of the marks on him of his past. It wasn't hard to imagine him in that setting when he told me what he, his past had been. But as soon as I started talking to him, I knew immediately that this was a saved believer. The grace of God was evident in him. And he had an interesting testimony as to how he was saved. He was converted through the contact that he had one day with the Christian Bikers Association. Some of you might not even know it exists, but it does. The Christian Bikers Association. He was at one of these summer shows um, that they have up and down the country. And he saw these guys on a stall all dressed in motorbike leathers. And so he was immediately drawn to them. And then he noticed that they were selling cheap cups of tea. It was the price that was cheap, not the tea. And he went across to have a cheap cuppa. And he was immediately struck by these men as he started speaking to them. Because although they looked quite like him, and although in many ways they were dressed just like him, he realised they were very much not like him. And he was very much not like them. They had the same love of motorbikes that he had. But as he got chatting to them, he realised there's something about these men that's very different. I've never met men in leathers like this who are like this. These men had a completely different temperament and attitude to his. He saw in them something that he didn't have and within even a few minutes, he realised he needed what these men had. Uh, now, perhaps some of us might tend to look at those men that Keith looked at that day, dressed all in their leathers with their motorbikes on the stall, and you might view them with suspicion. Christians don't dress like that. You can't become a Christian and continue with your old lifestyle. Well, of course, you can't continue with all of your old lifestyle. But at the same time, of course, it doesn't, doesn't mean that you have to abandon absolutely everything that you've had in your life, does it? But it does, of course, mean that everything that's in your life has to be sanctified by the grace of God. And sanctified by the truth of God. 
And the, the fact of the matter is you can be a justified and sanctified biker and wear leathers at a country fair. Keith met men that day who in certain ways looked just like him. But he discovered they were nothing like him. And they were doing what they could to reach out to men just like Keith. Paul said he would make himself as a Jew, as a Gentile. And these men were as bikers. But their Christian faith and their Christian character shone through. And Keith was immediately struck by them. Would Keith have gone over for that cup of tea if they'd all been wearing shirt, tie and suits? Maybe not. Were those men faithful, obedient believers with a heart for the lost? Yes, they were. And what I saw in Keith on that day when I was visiting the mission was a man who was able to get alongside and witness to all sorts of people that I would probably struggle to get alongside compared to him. But you know, he probably saw the same in me. There's probably all kinds of people that I can get alongside that he would struggle to get alongside. What we mustn't do is allow unnecessary things to stop us from making every effort like Paul made every effort. Like those Christian bikers at that summer fair were making every effort to reach as many as they could with the gospel of Christ. And so Paul discovered that he was at liberty to serve. And he had many liberties. He could use his liberties with the Jews. He could use his liberties with the Gentiles. He could use his liberties with those who were weak in order that he might reach them for Christ. And that's the great example that is set in the scriptures for each of us. In all our different, with all our backgrounds, all our different home settings, our work wherever we work, wherever we study, the vast variety of people that each of us across this fellowship are able to contact and reach throughout the week. So many different areas that you have access to that I don't. People that you can reach that I can't. As much as we are able, under Christ, to reach them with the gospel. And then Paul concludes by talking about the way he's striving to win. This issue of striving is common with Paul. Uh, You might find yourself asking, how did Paul keep his momentum going? When you read his life, when you look at all the different trials and sufferings that he endured, all the different kinds of circumstances that God permitted to come into his path as he served the Lord, how on earth did Paul keep going? How did he maintain that momentum His whole life is wrapped up from the moment of his conversion with this uh, being a herald of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, he gives us some insight into these things in these final verses. In verses 24 to 25, uh, he talks about the athlete. He talks about running. You know that those who run in a race all run. 
Now, he probably mentions athletics because it's something that the Corinthians were very familiar with. Uh, the city held its own games, a bit like the Olympics, every few years. They understood about the training and discipline that was required to be at the top of your game in any kind of sport or competition. You've ever heard an interview with an athlete who's just announced that they are retiring from top flight competition uh, and the interviewer asks them, what is it that you're going to miss most? One of the things they might talk about is the, the punishing regime that they've had to maintain as an elite athlete in order to get themselves into top condition and then to stay there. Those early mornings, the gruelling hours on the road or in the gym because their whole life has revolved around competing. Their whole life has been an ongoing cycle of training, coaching, watching their diet, trying to avoid injury, technical uh, improvements to their sport, trying to reach their peak performance just at the right time for competition and then starting the whole process all over again. And it's taken a huge amount of willpower and dedication and self-control and it's meant abstaining from all kinds of things to keep themselves in that peak condition. Why? Because there's only one winner. They only remember the one who won gold. And that's what I'm striving to do as an athlete. And that's exactly the kind of resolve that Paul has in his gospel work, he says. Running as in a race. That's how he approaches his Christian life. With resolve and with discipline, and with perseverance, and with focus. He says he runs with certainty, verse 26. Now we have lots of road races here in South Liverpool, and um, you see those little day glow signs with a picture of a runner on the lamppost that show the route that they're going to be taking, and all the notices go up about the road closures. Imagine a crowd of runners assembling in Sefton Park. The starter fires the gun. And a big sigh goes up from all the crowd who are assembled in all their gear. <sighs> and one by one, they dawdle off towards the starting line. Oh, if I must, and off they trudge. It's not like that at all, is it? They're all on the start line. They're chomping at the bit. It's almost like someone's holding an invisible set of reins to hold them back. Ready for the gun, waiting. And as soon as the gun fires, they're off. Where's the course? Where do I go? And the, it's all got their full attention. Paul says, I run with certainty. I know I'm in a race and I'm running it. Do you? I know the course I'm taking and I'm running it. Are you? I know the race that God's put me in. And I'm giving my all that I might run it. Are you? That's the example Paul is setting us here. He runs with certainty. He, know what, he knows what, what's required of him as an apostle. Now, of course, God has given Paul his own particular ministry. And the ministry that God has given Paul is not the ministry he's given you. It's not even the ministry he's given me. There are certain things that are common, but it's not the same. But he knows the race that God has given him to run. And he's determined that he's going to run it. 
God has given each of you a race to run as a Christian believer. There'll be all kinds of things that you share in common with the person sitting next to you as you run the race. And there'll also be those little differences that are unique to you. But God has given you your race to run. Run it like Paul did. And then he talks about fighting, verse 26. He says an interesting thing, doesn't he? Um, I fight not as one who beats the air. There's at least one person here, I think, this evening who's got some experience of boxing. But have you ever seen a boxer shadow boxing? They're sparring against an imaginary contender. The boxer goes through all emotions, making all the right moves, holding his hands in the right position, landing the blows in his mind just where he should. But all he's doing is beating his hands in the air. He's not actually fighting. He's not actually engaged in anything. He's making a lot of noise and he's using up a lot of energy, but he isn't actually engaged in the fight. That's not me, says Paul. I'm not just someone who's making all the right noises. I'm not just someone who's doing all the right moves. I'm actually fighting. I'm actually fighting for Christ. Put the boxer in the ring with someone. That's what counts. And Paul says, that's me. As Christ's servant, I'm actually in there doing what God has given me to do. So don't try to be like the shadow boxer, just going through all the right moves, coming to church, getting in all the right positions, but you've never actually thrown a real punch for the gospel in your life. That's what Paul has in mind here. He's someone who never or rarely really speaks to your Christian friends or colleagues about your faith. Never really talk to anyone else about Christ. You're just beating the air. Well, Paul gives us his great encouragement here. Don't just be beating the air. Get involved in the fight. Run the race. Contend for the gospel. And he stays on top of his game, if we can use that phrase. And in the final verse, I discipline my body. I bring it into subjection. Lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. I realise as a Christian, there are all kinds of godly disciplines that I should be employing. And I do my utmost to employ them. He's not a one-hit wonder or a one-win wonder. Occasionally in sport, someone suddenly appears from nowhere, produces a performance of their life like no one's seen before. And beyond anything they've done before... They astound all the pundits, but they never do it again. And they're just remembered for that one thing. And then they just disappear as suddenly as they came. A one-win wonder. Well, that's not Paul. No, no, no. I'm, I'm in this for the long haul, says Paul. I, I'm going to do everything that I can that I might endure. There are all kinds of means of grace that God has given me. That, that I might stay sharp and focused as a believer. I'm going to use every single one of them that I might stay sharp for Christ. Paul isn't too proud to realise that if he doesn't maintain those godly disciplines that are necessary for every Christian, he could very, very easily be one of those ministers who falls by the wayside. And he doesn't want that to happen because he knows what shame that will bring to Christ and his gospel. 
And so he contends and he takes this seriously and earnestly keeps himself fit for the gospel work that God has given him to do. He's in this race to the end. He's going to finish. And so he applies himself to those spiritual disciplines that are necessary. And every day he's putting to death the old Saul of Tarsus. That Saul is no more. I am this new creation in Christ Jesus. And I give myself to my Saviour wholeheartedly. Because Paul understands it's the gospel that's at stake here. There are people to win for Christ. There are Christians to be encouraged and taught in the faith. The race is on. Paul is in it. The fight is on. And Paul is slugging it out as a servant of Christ. And so must I. And so must you.